Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Moving through the setting server life, Red Rock Canyons, Aspen Forest, mountains and cities, Jana Richmond probes the depths of her internal landscape and asks how we can find stillness in our noisy world. In essays both personal and universal, she issues quick and easy answers for quiet reflections on questions such as these. In a culture demanding that every voice be heard, how do we make sense of the resulting roar? Where do we seek solace when the last quiet places are sacrificed to human hubris? And how do we shed the angst thrust upon us to create lives of peace? Jenna Richmond is author previously of a memoir, Riding in the Shadows of Saints, a woman's story of motorcycling the Mormon Trail, two novels, The Ordinary Truth and The Last Cowgirl, which won the Will Award for Contemporary Fiction, was runner-up for a Utah Book Award. Her most recent book is a collection of personal essays, Finding Stillness in a Noisy World. Jenna Richmond, welcome to the program. Thank you. I should say welcome back to the program. Yes, thank you. Um, appreciate you being on with us. So, um, wonderful book. This is out from University of Utah uh, Press. I want to start with the desert. And uh, the desert, of course, runs through this book, runs through your life, right? It does. So, starting with Tooele, you grew up in, in Tooele? I grew up in Tooele in Utah's West Desert and uh, didn't really recognize the desert so much as a child. Um, didn't didn't really have an appreciation of it then. Uh, so, but but it, with the exception of three years in which I went during which I went to the East Coast to try to make my fortune, um, I've spent my entire life in one desert or another. So I think that's my place. Mm-hmm. And you say uh, in the preface, whenever I visit a city now, I come home feeling like I've been on a bender. I feel a little grubby, a little obscene after getting swept up in the city's consumption and excess. What, what are you finding in the desert that, that you're not finding in the city? Uh, that's a, that's an excellent question. I, I've been in the city now. I live in Escalante, Utah, and I've been in the city uh, this past week, and I... I so miss the desert by the end of the week. I miss an urban life. There are certain things about an urban life I miss. I've been to two movies this week while I've been in the city, and I haven't been in a movie theater for more than nine years prior to that. Hmm. So there are some things I miss, but it's the, uh, well, it's the stillness of the desert. It's the emptiness of the desert. It's the, um, and emptiness isn't quite the right word. It's it 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 is the stillness. It is the ah. It's it's a hard thing to describe. Mm-hmm. It it clearly is just my place. Mm. And uh, you write that in the desert, you you really come to know yourself. You really come to terms with yourself. Unsettlingly so. I guess the desert kind of scratches you raw. Yeah, yeah, in an in an unsettling and good way. Hmm. So I good way. Uh, yes, yes. And uh, so here in the city, there are so many distractions. I spent the entire last week distracting myself. There are not those distractions in the desert, and especially where I live, which is in Escalante, Utah. It's a long ways from pretty much anything. It's a very small town, eight hundred people. So um, the the easy distractions are not there, and uh, it leaves you with yourself. It leaves you to discover what's internal, mm-hmm. what's in your interior landscape. And you've written uh, about that in these essays. We'll get into that. Um, uh, you you talk about how you uh, joined a, a reading group discussion of when the emperor was divine. Wonderful book by uh, Julio Tsuka. Mm-hmm. It's about the topaz. Mm-hmm. Um, internment camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit about what happened there. So when when we were in that discussion, uh, everyone was talking about the horrors of the Topaz internment camp, and of course it was horrible. But but what they were talking about really was the location of it, not the camp itself, and how you know there couldn't have been a worse place to put an internment camp than in Utah's West Desert, and I was pulled up short by that. I was surprised by that. Utah's West Desert for me is a place of beauty and solitude. And um, uh, so when when everyone started to talk about it as a wasteland, everybody started to talk about it as 
uh, you know, that's a place where no human would ever want to spend time. Uh, so the place itself, not just the fact that people were imprisoned, but the place itself was horrid. Um, it kind of broke my heart that uh, the beauty of the place wasn't seen by the masses, wasn't seen by most people. Mm. And you did something I probably wouldn't have done uh, based on that experience. You then drove out into the desert. Uh, why'd you do that? Well, it was a place uh, that I was familiar with. So it was a place of my youth, um, the Utah's West Desert, not exactly where the Topaz internment camp was, which was m more near Delta, Utah. But um, I drove out um, in out in Rush Valley in Tooele County and drove out toward Dugway Proving Grounds. And um, so it was a place I was familiar with, but I really needed to come to terms with this idea of what everyone else was turning away from out there mm. and what I was finding there. Mm. And uh, it does um, it does confront a person. It does make you it, it's a lonely place. And so it gives you an opportunity to be there alone with yourself. And uh, it, it, so at the same time, there's beauty there. There's also, for me, because it brought in all of whatever pain I was carrying from my childhood, it brings all that out in me. Mm. That's, what the, that, that's what the West Desert does for me. Mm. And, um, but it also brings healing and brings solace and brings all of that. So mm. it's an interesting combination. And I think that's what most deserts are for me. Yeah. You say that talking to the desert never stops breaking my heart. But then you just went on to say that it brings healing as well. It, it in fact does. But, but Utah's West Desert has that kind of rawness for me because it does bring up all of the maybe unresolved issues. Hmm. <laughs> right. That's Tuella and that area, I guess it's all bound up. In the, yeah. And I've written about that before. I mean, I've written mm -hmm. about that in The Last Cowgirl. I wrote about the, the nerve gas spill out there. So it's a place that I keep returning to, mm -hmm. probably for that reason, trying to reconcile all of those feelings. Yeah. Do you think most of us do that, or I guess would do that if we were writers, you know, reflective like you? I would hope so. Mm -hmm. I think it's useful. Um, and I write, it, I write about that a little bit in this book. I write about solitude, and I write about the virtues of solitude, even if we don't, um, even if we don't pursue it. But if you find yourself alone and you find yourself spending periods of solitude, um, especially in a place like a, a, a desert that doesn't have a big population, um, something will happen, whether you consider yourself a reflective person or not, mm. I think, whether you wanted to be there or not. If you spend enough time doing that or in a place like that, things shift. Mm -hmm. uh, you uh, quote E.B. White. You said, in fact, you opened this saying that your, your first love was... Uh, Charlotte's Web, right? Yes. Um, and then you discovered his essays. Yes. Uh, later on, they became very, very influential uh, uh, for you. I just want to read this a couple of sentences, which gets us into our modern world. And you write a lot about this, uh, this contrast between the solitude of the desert and coming to know ourselves and reflecting upon ourselves versus the, just the busy and busier, busier world that we're living in now. This is 1938. E.B. White uh, reminds, writes in an essay called Removal, you quote this here, um, or you say that uh, he, he laments the latest technological invention, television, and he lamented that the sound effects are taking the place once enjoyed by sound itself. Television sites may become more familiar to us than their originals, says E.B. White. White feared that we would, quote, forget the primary and the near in favor of the secondary and the remote. And I, th I think in 1938, E.B. White nailed much of our modern world. Yeah, I think he did too. Uh, and I read his essays a lot. I return to them over and over again. And uh, I find so much of uh, so much of what he wrote then is so relevant today. And that's why I keep returning to them. My original title for this book was One Woman's Meat, which was a kind of a play on E.B. White's 
call him um, One Man's Meat, but uh, no one liked that title, mm-hmm. so I right. let it go. Right, right. <laughs> but, but I didn't let E.B. White go. <laughs> right. But reading that in your in your book, I, I reflect on, you know, my life, the life of many of us, where we like to consume. We like to consume television or whatever it is or the politics or, you know, Internet. And it's it is in a very fundamental way at a remove from what's real. Yeah. Right? Sound effects instead of sound. Yeah. And I think that's the difference. And that's what I was talking about when I was talking about um, when I wrote about when I've been to the city, I feel like I've been on a bender because I feel like it's all about consumption. I'm consuming television. I'm consuming movies. I'm consuming food and restaurants. I'm consuming all of those things that are not available to me in Escalante. Um, And for a while, it's kind of fun. And then by the end of about five days, I just feel kind of exhausted by it. Mm. And, and, out of touch with things, out of touch with me and my own thoughts and my own, uh, just myself. I mean, I've, I've spent so much time bringing in uh, television, movies, whatever, bringing in everything that the city, that a city offers and just have kind of lost touch with my own thoughts. Mm. Now, some people may want to embrace the technology or whatever it is because they don't they don't want to be in touch with their own thoughts they want to escape from themselves i suppose yeah yeah my father was one of those <laughs> so uh he did not like being alone ever and did not like solitude and and yeah i i and i think that's a common thing i i, I do that too i think we all do that you know, you get to the end of a really exhausting day and you flop down in front of television for that very reason. You know, you're too exhausted to think uh, your own, about your own thoughts. Let, just just feed me some entertainment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fine. Right. Um, but I don't know if we want to make a life of it. Mm-hmm. That, that would be, I guess, you would say that's unhealthy. For me, it is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You you need to be in touch with, you need to be out in that solitude. Yeah. Out in the desert. Yeah, I do. And it's not only unhealthy, but it's really easy. I mean, I, I have to really watch myself. It's really easy to fall into that place. Um, at one point, I actually disconnected my television because it was too easy mm-hmm. to to go there and to be there. Yeah. Um, but it diminished my life mm. in in a lot of ways. Um, and even though we know it diminishes our lives, it's still really enticing. Yeah. Well, designed so, right? Designed so, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. And, and great designers. It right, really yeah. works. <laughs> so we have to work to get away from that. Yeah. Um, this probably might be a good place to bring in this. I, I found this a fascinating essay, Affordable Care. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I wonder if you'd tell me about this. You were at a period in your life, you're living in Tucson. Mm-hmm. And you decided to, because of things that have been happening in your life, you decided essentially to disconnect. Right, right. Uh, so technologically, but also, you know, withdraw from friendships. Be, be, make yourself yeah. personally known as uh, that introvert, and you know. And, and part of that was that friendships just naturally ended. I had several close friends who left uh, Tucson at that time, and um, I had a job change. I had a marriage that was ending. There were a lot of things that were just kind of finding their natural end. And and I wasn't really technologically connected, so I wasn't I didn't have to disconnect. I had never been on Facebook before. I didn't have a cell phone at that time. Um and everyone else did. I deliberately didn't have a cell phone at that time. And up until about six months ago I had a flip phone still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> until about six months ago, really. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I parenthetically, uh, it was a little longer ago for me, you know, a couple of years, two or three or four. I went from, uh, you know, the dumb phone to the smartphone. Yeah. And I found myself just being sucked in. My wife, my wife commented to me, you're on that phone all the, all the time. You know, you love that phone more than me kind of a thing. And it, it, was, it was just irresistible. And I had resisted for a while because I was afraid of that. Right, right, exactly. And now I've tried, tried being the key word to sort of, Put some rules yeah. in place, you know, yeah. et cetera. I don't know how to use mine that well, mm-hmm. so I'm not as sucked in as much as most people because it's just too difficult to – I don't want to learn how to use it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you say, when I emerged from my cloister, I took a modern approach to reconnecting with the world. 
So first you joined Facebook. I did. I did. I And I struggle with that every single day. And um, and I want to leave Facebook. <laughs> and, and I have maybe one friend who is not on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found that it did the opposite of connecting me with people. It... Um, it gave me a view of life that I was maybe happily delusional, ignorant of, um, and and I find it, I, I find that it, you know, a lot of people say it has helped me, and I think a lot of people find a way to use it positively. Mm-hmm. Um, they certainly you look at things like the U2 movement or the Me Too movement and, and things like that and you think, oh, social media has really helped. But but for me about ninety percent of it is um, negative mm-hmm. in my life for me. I mean the feelings that it brings on. It fills me with self loathing when mm-hmm. I spend an hour on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> not healthy. So which <laughs> yeah. and I think many many would be nodding their heads along yeah. with you. Um, you say you're overwhelmed by the competition for caring. So the the problem's twofold, you say. One, the opportunities for moral outrage are plentiful and you tend to soak up that angst. I say amen to that. Um, and just and then the the outrage the, you know, the, the, we live in a world of outrage, and it, it seems to be yeah. getting more and more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The opportunities for moral outrage are plentiful and valid, and and um, but how do we navigate that? I feel like I'm nav- I feel like I'm walking through a moral and ethical minefield all the time. How much of it can we hold on to? How much of it can we bring into our lives? How much of it? You know, I mean, especially in the last year. Um, since the last election, uh, presidential election, there's been kind of a mandate of things you must do. And all that does for me is just fill me with angst. Am I doing enough? Can I possibly do enough? Can any of us do enough? Um, And so I had to find a place. And this was part of the writing of these essays. This was this all kind of writing the essays – was driven by that feeling, that feeling of I have to find a place where I can be still. I have to find a place where I can be peaceful. And I think everybody needs that in their lives. But we're just, there are so many issues thrown at us and there's so many opportunities. I mean, it used to be I would pick up a a newspaper and I would read a daily newspaper and then I would set the newspaper down. But things weren't coming at me all day long, 24-7, and now they are. And so uh, so I had to ask myself, how much of that can I grab onto and how much of it do I absolutely have to let go, even though people are telling me you can't let that go? I mean, the, 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 the adage now is that, uh, you know, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And so that's, it's just this load on of guilt and noise and um, self-doubt. And I had to find a place to step step away from that. Mm-hmm. So your solution is, um, as you say, I'm opting to take hold of what's near and dear. Caring in a small, non-technological way makes sense to me. So, so local concerns, I guess, uh, closer to you? Yeah, yeah. And now now that's become very big, now mm-hmm. that the monuments are being threatened. So, you know, I live in the middle of Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, and that matters to me. I moved there specifically for that. I moved there for that desert, for that place that had been protected. Um, and many people who live around those places are there for that reason. So... Um, so yeah, caring in a non, in a small non-technological way does make sense to me because trying to care through the technology feels at once distanced and unreal to me and, um, not particularly effective and lonely and, um, 
and and it apparently doesn't affect everyone that way because there are very, there are a lot of people doing really great work through social media, but I'm not one that can. That's not my place. That's mm-hmm. not where I can do my work. Now you've anticipated one argument against your approach. Uh, you you write about it in the essays. You know, some friends may say, "Well, aren't you just burying your head in the sand? Aren't you know shouldn't shouldn't you shouldn't you keep your caring technological and big?" Yeah, yeah. Uh, that 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 I have been accused of that. <laughs> um, but I think everybody has to find their own place. Everybody has to find their own way of doing what they feel needs to be done. And there's a lot that needs to be done. But if you, I, I, I mean, I think one, one um, person that I looked at when I thought about this essay was I looked at, um, I was reading a lot about Jane Goodall at the time. And she had her place, right? She's done amazing things, great good for the world. But she's focused in, she's very focused in her, in a place where she knows she needs to be. And that's what I felt. I felt like I, I, I'm too scattered. I can't, um, I'm just kind of, I, I, I'm kind of lost in the technological world with so much noise. It was really just a lot of noise. And I'm too scattered and I, I can't operate that way. So I had to think of a different way to go about um, doing what I need to do in the the world and living the life I need to live. Mm -hmm. No matter what, if that seems, you you know, everyone's going to come to you with their issue that they want you to get involved in and care about. And I do care about a lot of them. But there's only, you know, we're all, we all can only do what we can do. Mm-hmm. And some people can do a lot and some people can do a little. And I think we need to be compassionate about that. Mm. Very beginning of the book, you say, uh, the noise of the world seems to increase with each passing year. Well, my tolerance for it decreases. I yeah. think I'd join you there. <laughs> We're told to make our voices heard, which you say eventually, in my experience, results in a deafening roar with no recognizable message. There's a paradox, right? But I, I think I, I see the truth in what you're writing there. Yeah, we hear that all the time. I mean, everybody, I I see that line so much. Make sure your voice is heard. I mean, and the truth is we've been hearing certain voices for years and others have been silenced for years. So what we really need to be saying is some of you need to shut up. And other, so, so others can now speak and let's listen to them for a while. Let's listen to some other voices. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, you know, make your voice heard, make your voice heard has just become kind of a meaningless line to me because where, how, when matters, um, the setting for that matters and who's drowning out those voices matters. And so... I I think it there's good intention behind that line make your voice heard but but now it's just a throwaway line for all of us mm-hmm. it seems to me and you prescribe something fairly radical uh you say I believe in peace I believe it can spread from one person to the other so yeah. if you become a more personal peaceful person then perhaps perhaps locally and then maybe it can spread I believe in that I have to believe in that that's kind of where I that's kind of where that's kind of the center, the core that's of of the way I feel. Mm-hmm. So I have to believe in that. Here's your plea. This is a paragraph. This is uh, Janet Richmond, my guest. Let us stop just for a moment. Let us stop manipulating. Stop blaming. Stop accusing. Stop overgeneralizing. Stop lying. Stop giving ultimatums. Stop threatening. Stop demanding. Stop fearmongering. Stop yelling. Stop screaming. Stop stomping feet and pounding fists. Please let us stop. Pause for a moment, listen, breathe, and uh, oh, if we only could, right? But I guess the argument against this is if I stop screaming, then the people that I am diametrically opposed to, they'll keep, they'll keep screaming. They win. Is there, you know, is there, is there a way we can all get to, to where you want us to get to? That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, so that's driven by fear, right? It's driven by um yeah, it's it's driven by, and it, and again, it's 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 going back to well, if I stop and listen, then my voice isn't going to be heard. You know, it's that fear that um, 
I, I don't know if we can ever get to that place. There's someone, there's another essay in that book where I say, I just want everybody to just shut up for a while. <laughs> just, I'm right. just, let's have some quiet public places. Like, mm-hmm. like, do we all have to be chattering and yelling and, and outraged? It, it doesn't seem to be working. I don't have the answers. Mm-hmm. I can't even pretend to have the answers, but it doesn't seem to be working. Right. And quiet and peace might might help. I think many of us have that desire. It's, it's I guess, the problematic part is getting there. But uh, I guess it starts with the desire, right? If, if enough people desire it. Yeah, yeah, I think it does. Let's uh, take a break, Um, and when we come back, more with Jana Richmond. Her new book out, collection of essays from University of Utah Press, is called Finding Stillness in a Noisy World. More following this. The history of body modification is as old as humanity itself. Some of the most common body modifications present in American culture, including dyed hair, makeup, tattoos, piercings, and implants, are those that we observe around the world and throughout time. Nose piercing is mentioned in the Old Testament, and tongue piercing was practiced by the ancient Aztecs and Mayans of Central America. Otzi, a Bronze Age ice mummy, bears evidence that his ears were not only pierced, but gauged. His remains also show that he had at least 57 tattoos on different parts of his body. Body modification today is practiced for the same reasons it has historically been popular. Rites of passage, social belonging, and fashion. This segment of Anthropology, What's It to You, has been made possible by our members and the USU Museum of Anthropology collection, including pre-Columbian Peruvian ceramics, Indonesian textiles, and Great Basin. Details at anthromuseum.usu.edu. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, and uh, my guest uh, for the hour today is Jana Richmond. The latest book is a collection of essays called Finding Stillness in a Noisy World. Uh, Jenna Richmond is author previously of a memoir, Riding in the Shadows of Saints, A Woman's Story of Motorcycling the Mormon Trail, two novels, The Ordinary Truth and The Last Cowgirl, and the uh, latest book is Finding Stillness in a Noisy World. So Jenna Richmond, I wanted to uh, have you talk a bit about Escalante. Escalante is the proper pronunciation? I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure either. Okay. <laughs> Depends on who you talk to, I, how I, long I, they've been there. Um uh, it's either Escalante or it's Escalante or it's okay. Escalante. And and you write about that division, right? Right. I guess if you're a newcomer, you might say it the fancier way, but if you're an old timer, it's Escalante, right? Yes. Uh, um, I try to say it Escalante, you know, showing my bona fides as a, as a Utah, I guess. Right. Um, but, but you talk about uh, coming in, you and your husband came in, I don't know what, 20 years ago or something, right? No, the, we the, moved to Escalante... Um, and that's how I pronounce it, <laughs> uh, about 10 years ago. Oh, 10 years ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. But uh, 10 years, mm-hmm. but I'm guessing you're still an outsider. In, oh, yes. In, in, in the view of many uh, residents. Yes. Um, and you write about uh, there's a religious divide, the the old the Mormon families and the newcomers. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. There is a big divide, a big disagreement over environmental issues. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in fact, I guess I hadn't known this, but I guess I could have guessed this. Uh, President Clinton and uh, Secretary of Interior Bruce Babbitt were burned in effigy. That was before I got there. That was before mm-hmm. you got there. That was when the, uh, uh, when the Grand Staircase uh, Escalante National Monument was announced. Yeah. Was formed. Um, uh, so I guess probably still uh, tensions run high, feelings run high about the. Yeah, I I think tensions run high. I I've been surprised since Trump's um, tearing apart of the monument and he eliminated half of it. Um, I still refer to it, and most people I know still refer to it as Escalante as Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, and I am hoping that it will stay that. You know, there's still legal battle to be fought over that. Um, I've been surprised that, that with the exception of the, of the county commissioners and the um, state politicians and um, our federal politicians from Utah, it's, it's been a pretty quiet thing. I expected more... Um, buzz about it in town. And either I'm out of touch, which is possible, very possible, or there's there's been a little bit of a shift. 
um, the town is really thriving, I think, and it's thriving on tourism and it's thriving because the monument is there. And, and I don't know if people are starting to recognize that and say, you know, maybe this, maybe we've already moved that direction. And so maybe this isn't the best time to try to go back 20 years and, and restructure this. Um, but I haven't been hearing a lot of buzz about that from anyone except my own group. But I haven't, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, what people who would consider themselves locals, which is people who have been there generationally, um, they have built tourist businesses. There's a new hotel in town. There's a lot of new, um, tourist-based businesses that locals are invested in. So, I I think the um, the tearing apart of the monument was a kind of a political decision that I don't know if everybody really if if everybody who once thought they wanted that I don't know if they still want that I can't tell I can't really get a get a bead on it I'm not sure I was interested to, to read your perspective um, you know uh, now uh, I was going to say a local I guess you quote unquote local I mean you live there right but you're not one of the originals. Right. You say, when I squeeze by an Escalante local in our teeny post office, the person who grew up in this town, whose mother and grandmother grew up in this town, it doesn't matter how friendly I am or how good I am or where I came from, I represent her loss. The loss is real. There's a deep sadness attached to it. Yeah. That loss, loss isn't necessarily, you point out, the population population stayed about the same, but mm-hmm. the composition of the population has changed. Right. And so I want to have you read this uh, page, which uh, I, I think uh, help people, uh, page eight. And uh, this is in the essay called The Land of No Use, talking about Escalante and the, the monument, the things we've been talking about here. But I think sometimes we don't take the time to try to understand each other. You know, uh, right. as an environmentalist, you might say, what loss, right? Population's still the same. The economy's going okay, you know. Um, right. And on the other side, you know, the, 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 the may not even try to, to uh, make an environmentalist understand what yeah. What your loss is. You write about this. Uh, so I wonder if you just read this page eight. Sure. It is undoubtedly true that the monument has contributed to the religious and ideological shift in Escalante, filled the town with strangers, many of them slotted into the catch all category, often heard muttered at the post office with disdain, radical left wing liberal environmentalist. I proudly hold my position in that category. There's not a single word in that string of words that I'm ashamed to claim. I'm also sixth-generation Mormon and the daughter of a small-time rancher who ran cattle on Utah public lands, arguably the most contentious issue in town. And I proudly hold my position in those categories as well. I have no intent and no means to clean up the contradictions. The loss of identity to town and people should not be summarily dismissed by those of us causing it. According to geographer Robert Hay, the depth of one's bond to a place is affected by one's ancestral and cultural sense of place. In other words, generations of family on certain land create a deeper spiritual bond to a place than can be created simply by length of residence. That's no small thing, especially to Mormons whose history historical story includes the establishment and loss of many beloved towns and places, which is what landed them here 140 years ago. I moved back to Utah after spending 20 years searching, vowing to never leave again and seeking exactly what Hay mentions, the spiritual bond to my ancestral place. But I found, as many have before me, that my ancestral place is entombed under a Walmart footprint. I understand the sense of loss in Escalante, but I cannot stop it, nor would I if it meant coal mining in the Kaparowitz Plateau, creating in my heart and mind a loss so fathomless there'd be no chance of recovery. And that word loss, I think that helps us to understand why these arguments are so heated. Yeah, I think so too. I I, I go back to, you know, my mother was... Um, a, a very devout Mormon woman, and I was very, very close to her. And she grew up up here in Cache Valley. She grew up in Hiram. And um, and the change, you know, from the time she was here 
to now, as I'm sure you know, has been vast. Um, and and same, I grew up in Tooele, and that town has changed a lot too. And and so those are those losses are real. Those losses of our childhood places, and I think anybody over a certain age feels immense loss of their childhood places because things change. But Escalante is a town that did not change for about a hundred, <laughs> you know, about a hundred years. It just didn't change. It was isolated. And so there's, um, it's scary to have a bunch of new people coming into town and saying, oh, you know what? We want dark skies. So let's get rid of all the streetlights here. We want, you know, we, we would like to see this and this and this. That's really threatening. And it's, it, it's a it's a very real loss and it's and it was a very close cohesive community and I'm sure it had all those small town quirky problems of who's not speaking to who but that loss is is real and so I think we have to recognize it at mm-hmm. the very least we may not want to go back to what it was but I think we have to recognize it mm-hmm. if you turn over that coin um, for someone like you and you represent many, I'm sure, for whom the you know these places are sacred, right? You 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 find yourself out there. You, you mm-hmm. find healing out there. Um, it's a very real loss if a Walmart goes up over one of these places, or or you know, right? Or or right. extractive industry comes in, or mm-hmm. if they're degraded by cattle grazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, I can't claim the market on that feeling of love of place. So that rancher may love that place too <laughs> in a different way and in a way that feels somewhat destructive to me. But I understand that. I mean, my father, when he was running cattle on public lands, had a very romantic relationship with those lands. And so I get that. I understand it. Um I I think maybe it's time has passed and we need to revisit it, but I understand it. I get it. Mm-hmm. And that's a start, I guess, right? Understanding across that, that divide. It's a start, but I don't know that it gets us very far. <laughs> yeah, that that's an interesting question. I guess I guess we can feel good about understanding each other, but if it if we don't come to agreement, yeah, then then where are we left? Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's a tough tough. Um, that's a big divide that to cross. That's a really difficult thing. I wonder if I, if you talk, you write about um, there, there's there's a scene where you're talking with your father, mm-hmm. and uh, apparently your your dad and you would argue quite a bit about these issues. So you picked a subject where you thought would provoke a, a real good argument. You picked wolves. Right. Reintroduction of wolves. Right. Tell me what happened in that that case. Um, Well, he surprised me, and my father is no longer living, so this was a few years ago. Um, And and yes, we did argue about a lot to the the point where for a while we just stopped speaking to each other. Um, That was his choice, but it was peaceful for me, too, so it was okay for a while. so I asked him what he thought about the reintroduction of wolves, and this was quite a few years back. And he, you know, ranchers are um, kind of, they have been very outspoken about the reintroduction of wolves. And uh, so I just thought that he, I thought that I was, I, I may have been, um, deliberately triggering him a little bit by asking that question, but I really did want to know his thoughts on that. And he surprised me by, by he wasn't a quiet man, he was a very loud man, but he surprised me by getting um, kind of quiet, becoming quiet, and then saying that he thought that they belong out there, that wild animals belong out there, and that we are losing something by um, manipulating nature in the way we are manipulating it. And this was toward, he was he was quite old at that time. I, I think he was near 80 at that time in this. He had already stopped ranching. And maybe had I asked him when he was in his 
50s and he was still running cattle on public lands, he may have had a very different answer. But but it does show that he, I think that feeling of that wildness and that the beauty of what's wild out there was in him. And maybe during his ranching days, he was he was going to push that away because he belonged to the ranching community and wolves are bad mm-hmm. um, for them. So uh, he did surprise me. That was kind of the closest we had come on an issue like that and kind of the quietest talk we'd ever had about mm-hmm. that. I'm not sure if this is was your phrase or his, but in this essay you talk about uh, – um, uh, the fact that we talk about managing the wolf, managing wildlife, and we forget to or refuse to manage ourselves. Yeah, that was kind of his feeling too. He he said um, his his I think exact his exact wording uh, was there are just too damn many of us, <laughs> and 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 we don't man- and we try to manage everything and we don't manage anything very well and that is true when it comes to us trying to manage nature we just don't we it, it's kind of an absurd idea that we can manage nature we can't and never will be able to but we don't stop trying mm-hmm. Let's take another break when we come back more with Jana Richmond. Jana Richmond is author most recently of a collection of essays published by University of Utah Press, Finding Stillness in a Noisy World. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, my the essays I responded to most in the book, maybe the most personal ones, and that's uh, talking about you and your husband um, and how you both need, you need the desert, right? Yes. So let's, uh, let's talk about that following uh, this break. People are raccoon crazy on this island. On the next Radio Lab. He was a massive lobster in a teeny weeny tank. The lengths that people go to for the animals they love. I think he's cute, and I think I like it. A coffee cup with a raccoon on it. A snow globe with a raccoon in it. People rescuing large lobsters. I would have taken my husband's gun and I would have I would have shot. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> we were in coach. This lobster's <laughs> up in the first class. <laughs> That's on the next Radio Lab. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. We're back with Jana Richman. The latest book is Finding Stillness in a Noisy World, and uh, it is a collection of essays out from University of Utah Press. So as I mentioned before the break, Jana Richman, I responded, I think, most to the the most personal essays. Uh, Maybe that's predictable, where you'd really open up. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the the last essay in the book. It's called Dark Love, and the fact that you and your husband, you found each other, and I guess somewhat naively, you thought even though he suffers from depression, you from anxiety, the the, the two um, share some symptoms, I guess. And uh, yeah. tell, tell me what you thought. Maybe we could we could work this out, and it, it wouldn't. You, you certainly didn't think it'd be as hard as it would be it was when you, know, no, you found out. No, I mean we we talked about we talked about it early on in our relationship, and we we were immediately drawn to each other. We met each other later in life, and we kind of knew we belonged together. He's from Magna. I'm from Tooele, opposite sides of the Oakers, and um, we we very much kind of knew we belonged together. Um, he suffers from depression, and I suffer from anxiety, and maybe I didn't really understand at that time how much anxiety I carry. Um, and, in fact, I know I didn't understand, but uh, but I didn't, and I didn't know anything about depression, nothing. So I just thought, oh, yeah, well, I can fix that. We can fix that because we're in love, and we'll be happy together, and that's the end of that. And of course, that's not the end of that, because depression is very real. And so um, this essay that you're talking about, it's called Dark Love, and it's the last essay that I wrote for this book. And I didn't know, this essay took me almost a year to write. Um, I kept going back to it, and I kept going back to it, and I kept going back to it. And I didn't know if it would ever be published, because it is so personal. And I gave him the option of, of... nixing the publication of it. And he said, you know, he gave me his blessing to publish it. But but the one thing about his depression that he has always known is that he has one, he, he, he knows that he can always pull himself out of it. And he has one kind of fell-safe method of doing that. And that is to go to the desert. And I mean, not just drive through the desert, I mean, go out to the desert and stay four days or however long it takes 
and just be he he feels um when he's well I can't really speak for the way he feels <laughs> I just see it from my side but um you know people who suffer from depression will recognize it um you know, I kept trying to process it and trying to fix it because that's what anxious people do. We want to process that everything, and so um, and that was not his style. That was not what he needed. He needed to be alone, and he needed to be uh, somewhere. Uh, the desert for him is just this absolutely comforting, soothing, healing place. Even the most harsh elements of it. The dryness of it, the heat of it, the um, but also the beauty of it and the and the vastness of it, um, the fact that he can go out there and be completely alone, not see anyone ever while he's out there, um, and just kind of come back to himself. Um, so he kept saying to me, "I need to go to the desert," and I just kind of dismissed that. I thought, "Well, yeah, that's nice. I I'd like to go to the desert too." Um, but I, but I dismissed it. I didn't hear what he was saying. I didn't hear him say that to me as a real, um, a real need, not just a desire to go hang out in the desert, but a real need for himself. Yeah. I wonder if I'd have you uh, read a passage from this uh, essay. It's the last one in the book. The book is Finding Stillness in a Noisy World. The author is Jenna Richmond, who joins me for the hour. So this is page 111. Stephen bodies light and darkness in their extremities. The dark runs deep and murky, but radical light runs parallel. I fear the dark will snuff out the light and destroy him, destroy us. He assures me that will never happen, and like a religious skeptic teetering on the edges, I work to keep the faith. I want to pry him apart, separate light from dark. I want the model with the personalized options, not the package deal but his GPS is already installed. Ripping it out would leave him lighter, yes, but also deformed, shrunken, misshapen. Much of his beauty comes out of the shadow. His gentleness, his patience, his wisdom, his passion all flow from having dwelt in the tender place of despair. I deeply understand the truth of this. Still, I want it to be easier. For him, yes, but mostly for me. He knows this darkness, and he oddly draws strength from its familiarity, as if it constitutes some sort of sacred ritual. I cower in its presence. On the fourth day of his depression, I wake to find the office door open and him gone. I breathe a sigh of relief for a morning without his dark presence and say a small prayer to the gods he worships, red rock canyons and sagebrush flats. He has gone to the desert. I walk out to the garage to see what's not there, a cot, a sleeping bag, a five-gallon water jug, all good signs. He will spend nights under a dark sky, and when the sun rouses him, he will walk between red rock walls, bumping against, against them in his rawness. He will find a flat run of slick rock to lie upon, and he will stay until desert light finds a fissure in his constructed shield. Then he'll come back to me. Hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, I love this, uh, this desire. You know, I think we can all relate to this. The people we love, we sometimes would want the, the light in them and not the dark in them, right? But you can't right. do that, nor should we want that, because as you write, because of his depression, uh, that has made him gentle, patient, right. wise. Right. You know. Absolutely. Um, I want to just, we, we're running out of time here. I want to have you read another passage. This is from uh, The Monsoonal Flow of Kindness, mm -hmm. and this is uh, page uh, 83. So you, uh, just to set this up, you talk about uh, you, uh, New York Times published an essay of yours, which, uh, which you shared your lifelong struggle with fear as part of your anxiety. And uh, it was interesting the re reaction you got, right? Some, some people said, uh, snap out of it. <laughs> and others were more understanding and, uh, and said you're brave to, to share. Uh, then you talk about your father, who you describe in, the, this, in this sense as a miserly man, uh, 
I guess a, a zero sum game, right? Of what you what you share and, and give away, at least in things mm-hmm. of the heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, your husband is is different in that way. But uh, uh, this is a very beautiful uh, part of this essay. So starting with Steve likes to run in the desert, and then continuing to the end of the next page. Yes, Steve likes to run in the desert. I like to walk in the desert. Both of those things are made more pleasurable by the kindness of monsoons. So we've been going out often, starting at different points and meeting in the middle. We typically go out after the monsoon has passed, but the remnants linger. Pools, quicksand, the scent of sage, and if we're lucky, waterfalls over Slickrock. Sometimes we're out when the monsoon arrives, so we tuck under an alcove to watch the storm through wide eyes in a panel of water, or climb to the safety of high ground and squat under our rain slickers to watch the river rise, turning muddy and gush below us. Washed smooth and moisture-packed sand is bliss to walk on, like walking on a sponge. It requires no trudging. As I walk, I can't stop myself from turning to look back at my footsteps, especially if I'm walking barefoot. I'm fascinated by the way they follow me, teasing and fun, a playful existential game with a moral I've yet to figure out. Once while walking together in post-monsoon sand, I noticed that I, in my slighter and smaller body, was leaving deeper prints than Steve. I attribute this to his lightness of spirit, his practice of casting off gratuitous millstones. I, on the other hand, encircle my neck with an albatross necklace, which I wear self-righteously to the point of cutting off my own breath. But as I age and carve away at my flinty self, I expect to one day turn and see only flush pink sand behind me. I watch Steve closely trying to copy his technique. Some of those who don't know him well might describe him as aloof, but he's deeply caring, so caring that he never tries to rescue me from myself, never tries to push me out of my own way. The depth of his kindness brings me to tears. Mm, beautiful. Thanks. So what, um, uh, you, you dream of a time when you look behind you and you won't be leaving footprints. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what, what will that mean? I, I think... Um, and this is what drew me to write these essays. I, I, um, I need to learn how to let things be. I need to learn how to let more light in. And that is so challenging in the world that we live in today. And so that's kind of, you know, my metaphor for basically lighten up. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> Well, it's a beautiful collection of essays. It's called Finding Stillness in a Noisy World. It's out from University of Utah Press, the latest from Jana Richmond. And uh, you can find out more about her at her website, janarichmond.com. And uh, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Flint, Michigan became synonymous with bad water when the citizens were exposed to lead in 2014. Now the author of a new book says there are still lessons to be learned. There are definite characteristics about what happened in Flint that are unique. However, we have lead infrastructure all over our country. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us for Hour 2 of Here and Now today at noon on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.